did. All right, well, welcome. Um, my name's Robert again, and uh, excited that you're all here. If you are between kindergarten and about sixth grade, uh, it's time to go down to the kids' class. You guys can head down. So we're back in Judges. We uh, spent, have been spending most of our time in Judges this semester. Last uh, Sunday we had a Mission Sunday emphasis and we took a break, but now we're back at it. We're starting with the story of Samson. We've been using this Judges cycle as a way to understand uh, Judges, and it kind of has this intro and then these 12 Judges. And in this 12 Judges story, you have this cycle where uh, God's people disobey by worshiping other gods. They're disciplined. They then find themselves in distress because of the discipline. They cry out in that distress. God sends a deliverer, and they have a time of rest because they've been delivered, and then they go right back into disobedience, discipline, distress, deliverance, and on and on and on it goes. And so there's, there's 12 judges, and most scholars would say these these 12 come from 12 different tribes, so it's almost like God's going through each tribe and trying to find a judge uh, that, that could bring some kind of lasting change, and each one of them is, is a dead end. Uh, that none of them can really bring about uh, lasting change. And so if we look at a list of the judges, we've only looked at a, a few of them, but uh, Judges 1 and 2, you, you see briefly described in the book of Judges, and then uh, the writer take some time to talk about Deborah and, and her work with Barak, and, and they deliver uh, the people of Israel. Then we move to Gideon, and we spend a lot of time on Gideon because the writer of Judges spends a lot of time on Gideon. And so we see Gideon leaving false worship and embracing true worship and delivering the people of God, and everything looks really good at Judge number four, and then he turns right back to idol worship by the end of his life. This then spins out of control one of uh, Gideon's sons, Abimelech, decides he wants to be the next judge. And so the way he does that is kill uh, Gideon's other 70 sons, ends up burning a 1,000 people alive, both women and children, ends up getting his head bashed in by a woman. So that's judge number five. Judge number six and seven, briefly mentioned. And then judge number eight, this guy named Jephthah. And Jephthah is one bad dude. Like, he's so bad, Israel kicks him out of the country and exiles him. But then in their desperation, they go back to him and ask him to come back and be their leader. I know it's hard to believe that countries could be so desperate that they would choose a bad leader, but it does happen. And so it brings Jephthah in. Jephthah kills a lot of the bad guys, but then turns on his own people and starts killing his own people. And uh, he ends up... Uh, being uh, killed as well. Judges 9, 10, and 11, briefly mentioned, and finally we spiral all the way down to judges, uh, judge number 12, and that's Samson. He's the worst of the worst. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you might think Samson is like a hero, <laughs> but honestly, I mean, let's just be honest. We get down to Samson, he's the worst of the worst. And so what, what we're going to see is that we, as we move into this darkest of, of times, uh, at least so far in the book of Judges, we're also seeing the most hope-filled chapter in the entire book. This text that was just read by Isabel uh, is, is the most hope-filled chapter. 
And so while we see both the darkness, we're also going to see life and light coming out of that darkness brought about by God. So let's take a look at this, Judges chapter 13. So hopefully you're grabbing Bibles off the floor there, opening up on your phone. I purposely usually don't put the main scripture on uh, the, the screen behind me because I, I want you to look it up in the Bible, figure out where things are, use the table of contents. It's okay if you don't know where Judges is. A lot of people in this room don't know where Judges is, so welcome, welcome to the party. Judges 13, um, it's the, it, it opens up much like many of the other cycles that we see in Judges. It says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So there, that, 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 that kind of refrain is over and over and over. They do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then they're disciplined, right? And then they find themselves in the distress of being under the oppression of, of the Philistines. But it's for 40 years. Up to this point, they have not been in that amount of distress for that long. So far, they've been in distress eight years, 18 years, 20 years, seven years, 18 years, but never 40 years. Usually 40 is the amount of rest they have from oppression. And this, you see this over and over where God lets them be in oppression for a short time, but then when he delivers them, he lets them be in rest for a longer time. And so it's usually 20, 40, even 80 years of rest from oppression, but, but now... They're experiencing 40 years of oppression. So this is the darkest of darkest moments up to this point. It will get darker at the end of Judges. But up to this point, this is the darkest moment in uh, the book of Judges. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps, perhaps you have been in a dark place for a really long time. Now, most of you have not lived for 40 years, so it wasn't 40 years long. But maybe it felt like it. Maybe it felt like it. Maybe it was depression. Maybe it was sexual assault. Maybe it was divorce, your own divorce, or perhaps divorce of your parents, addiction, chronic illness. We've been in a dark place, just, just groping in the dark, no idea what to do, no sense that there was any God anywhere to help you. There was a, a story told yesterday. We, we had a workshop on uh, ministry to Muslim peoples, and it was great, great, great time. Many amazing stories were told, some of them heartbreaking, and one that was told was a, a Syrian who uh, had raised a flag to Syrian independence, and it was put on social media, and, and, and the government came and took him and put him in prison because he raised this flag for Syrian independence. And so he was in one of President Assad's prisons, and this missionary who had met him told the story of meeting him and seeing his arms completely covered with scars because he'd been tortured in that prison. He'd been electrocuted, been starved, gone through all kinds of things. His hands literally looked like an old person's hands with that, that were drawn from arthritis, but he didn't have arthritis. The reason his hands were drawn is because the tendons in his hands had been cut from torture. Right? Place of absolute darkness, absolute despair. Israel found themselves in that despair. Philistine oppression was really bad. These are bad folks. These are bad, bad 
people. And they become a thorn in the side of God's people for many years. Perhaps if you know a Bible story from the Old Testament, you know David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. So so that's going to be generations after this, right? And so the Philistines are going to continue to be a thorn in the flesh of God's people. Now, why is this happening to Israel in particular? Well, they're being disciplined because of false worship. Their problem is worshiping other gods, and that gets worse as you go through the book. One of the descriptions is in Judges 10, verses 6, and part of 7 describes it this way. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. It's like a frenzy of false worship. Earlier on, it was just Baal and Asherah. And now, it's every god and goddess that they can get their hands on, that they've brought into their personal pantheon. But here's what's even worse. It is at this place in Judges where they do not cry out to God at all for a deliverer. Up to this point in this cycle, whenever they're in distress... They cry out, help! And God meets them in that cry and sends a deliverer. Here, the Philistine oppression has become the new norm. They're not crying out. This is sort of like a a teenager who, who won't obey their parents. They've taken away their smartphone. They've taken away their computer. They've taken the door off their bedroom. They've taken their mattress away, and all they, all they have left is they get to eat, and they get to sleep on a sleeping bag, and they still won't obey. This is Israel. They're sleeping on the sleeping bag in their room with only food, and still they do not repent from false worship. There's no improvement. In fact, it just gets worse. But look what God does. Look what he does in the midst of that. Verse 2, a certain man of Zorah, tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then the woman came and told her husband, and the man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. This is grace. This is grace. Israel is not crying out for deliverer. And God is bringing a deliverer anyway. Israel is not crying out for a deliverer. And God 
is sending a deliverer anyway. They are not confessing. They are not repenting. And still he sees the distress of his people and he sends a deliverer. Now he sends this judge in a very unique way. No other judge is like this. All the, the other 11 judges did not have a beginning like this. Only the 12, only Samson. So what we have is a barren womb who is going to bring forth life. It's a dead place that from which, with God's power, he's superintending that womb such that life comes out of that womb. And secondly, this baby that's going to miraculously be born out of a barren womb is also going to be a Nazarite from conception. Now, what's a Nazarite? Now, the Nazarite vow is something uh, you can read about in Numbers chapter 6, and it's usually, it, it's a temporary vow that an adult would take, right? So an adult person, follower of God, wants to take a vow for a temporary time, because there's a set time, to set themselves apart as holy unto God. And they would not drink any alcohol, uh, they would not touch any dead things, and they would not cut their hair. And when they got the end, at the end of that vow, they would shave their head, and then they would offer a sacrifice for their sin. And so this was done, it, it was not something that was forced, it was something that it wasn't mandated, it was something that people did by their own volition as a way to set themselves apart as holy unto God. And Samson was going to be holy unto God from conception. So a, a child that is holy from conception, supernaturally born out of a womb. Does this sound familiar? We'll get back to that later. <laughs> now, a side note. Notice that there are multiple women in the thread of Judges that are the heroes of the story. Do you notice that? Early on, we, we saw Deborah. Deborah, nothing negative was said about Deborah. Deborah was wise, she was strong, she was full of faith and courage. Uh, we hear in, in Judges 4, J.L., she kills uh, the general Sisera with a tent peg, and she has a song written about her exploits in this military conquest. In Judges 9, which we didn't cover, but this unnamed woman kills Abimelech and saves her people from further destruction. And here we are in Judges 13, and God is talking to a woman. Now, she's unnamed. Interesting, right? She's Manoah's wife. But God knows her name. And God is speaking to Manoah's wife. He's, he's revealing to her. His plan. This is not expected in ancient world literature. It's one of the things that authenticates the Bible. This, this stands out in stark contrast to anything else that would have been written at the time. That men are being revealed as broken, as sinners, as failing. And, and the women are being revealed, yes, we'll, we'll get to Delilah, right? Like, like there's, sinning, there's sinful women in here. But there's these heroic, faith-filled women that are part of the redemptive story of God. And they're authenticating Scripture. That it's not just coming from some human beings that just made something up, but it's actually inspired by God and being revealed through His Holy Spirit. And it, in this story, it doesn't just happen once, it happens twice. 
that God is speaking to Manoah's wife. Verse 8, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Right? So I'm fairly certain Manoah didn't believe his wife because she told him what the Lord said. And he's like, okay, hey, Lord, would you tell me? Because I don't, I mean, he doesn't say he doesn't believe, but I'm pretty sure he, he's like, I'm not sure I want to believe this. And so this is what happens. God listens to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman. Uh, isn't that interesting? Came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me with the other day, was, he's appeared to me. And Manoah arose, he went after his wife, he came to the man, and he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is it, what, what's to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. And then he goes on and gives a little bit of the instruction that he gave to the woman about not drinking or eating something unclean. So it's sort of like Manoah saying, tell me how to raise the child, oh angel. He's like, do what I told the woman when I told her. Ask her, let her tell you what to do with the child. And again, she's she's not being named. But obviously God knows her name. And God is revealing his plan to this woman. But not only this woman, but this mother. He's about to start something new in the nation of Israel. And he's going to do it through a mother having a baby. He does this a lot. He seems to value this mother having baby thing. And he uses it to begin new things. And what, what better new thing than a baby? I mean, we have a lot of these around Our congregation, lots of new babies. It's amazing. It's like there wasn't a human, at least one that we could see, and then all of a sudden there's a human. It's amazing, right? And so God uses that experience of of this new life, of this new thing, to point to true and better new things. And he he, he did this with Eve, right? You got Adam and Eve, and, and, and they have a baby. They have Cain, and Cain is the beginning of a new a humanity, right? Sarah and Isaac, way too old to be having babies. And an angel announces, Sarah, you're going to have a baby. And guess what? Sarah has a baby, and it's the start of a new nation, nation of Israel, that God has many, many important purposes for. Manoah's wife here, we see her bearing a son, Samson, out of a dead womb that's been uh, announced by angels. Hannah, later on, will have a closed womb that will then be opened by God's supernatural power, and she will have the prophet Samuel. In the New Testament, we'll have Elizabeth. Elizabeth is way too old to be having babies. And an angel announces, no, God's going to do a supernatural thing in your womb and bring about a baby, and that baby's name is John. He becomes John the Baptist. And he's the one who's announcing the true and better deliverer that's coming. And then finally we have Mary, who this time it's not A barren womb, it's a virgin womb. Talk about a womb that's not supposed to be having babies. It's a virgin womb, and God supernaturally brings about a baby. And that baby is the beginning of the salvation, not just of 
of Israel, but of all humanity. And so God uses this whole mother having babies to bring about new things in his redemptive story. And so how will both Samson, the deliverer, and the true and better deliverer that he points to actually bring about this deliverance? It's revealed in this next set of verses here. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took a young goat with the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Now, if you've been with us throughout the book of Judges, this looks very familiar, does it not? It's very similar to the story uh, of Gideon. And they want to do the same thing Gideon wanted to do to the angel of the Lord. He wanted to, to make a meal, like cook a meal, and it was a young goat. I don't know, they, th- they must think that God likes young goats. I don't know. But he t- takes this young goat and it wants to make a meal and then offer the meal to the God, right? And this is pagan. The idea behind this in, in, in pagan, ancient pagan world was that the gods and goddesses needed food to be sustained. And so they were hungry. So if you would offer up a meal, then their bellies would be full and they would be happy and then they would do good stuff for you. And so this is the way they're thinking. This is, this is how paganized they are. They, they don't even know how to pr- appropriately approach the one true God. And so they're trying to offer the meal. Now, this time... The Lord just says, I don't want your meal. I don't want to eat a meal. I don't need a meal. I'm not hungry. I don't need to be sustained by, by you. But what I need is a sacrifice. That's what I need. So if you want to offer that goat as a sacrifice, please, by all means, you go right ahead and you offer it to the Lord. And he's talking to the, the angel and trying to figure out who, who this person is, right? And what's your name? And he says, this, my name is, is too wonderful, right? For me to utter or for you to understand. That, so, so we would say that this most likely is what, what theologians would call a Christophany. That the angel of the Lord is the Lord. This is the Lord. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus that's standing there talking to them. The same Jesus that walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. The same Jesus that, that spoke with Abraham. The same Jesus that spoke to Gideon earlier in Judges. The same Jesus now that's speaking to Manoah and his wife. And so this is this whole name thing back and forth. What's your name? And, and uh, he's like, basically, you can't handle it, right? <laughs> it's just too wonderful. <laughs> so if you want to offer a sacrifice, you offer a sacrifice. And so they offer a sacrifice, and he torches it. Now, this is exactly what uh, God does with Gideon. He torches it. Now, why does he do that? Because, because it's, it's, it's a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of Manoah and his wife. But, but there's one thing that happens. It doesn't happen in Gideon's experience, right? The angel of the Lord 
is most likely Jesus himself enters into the fire of the altar and is consumed along with the sacrifice. Does this sound familiar? This is pointing to the gospel. This is pointing to the need for Christ to be offered up as a once-for-all sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me. And Manoah doesn't get it. Manoah's confused, and his wife has to preach the gospel to him. This is interesting, right? Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife, and then Manoah knew that he was with the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we've seen God. It's the same thing that, that Gideon said. So he sees the holiness of God, and he's, and he's right. If all that's there is that holiness, he's dead. He's a goner. But then Manoah's wife explains to him, says, his wife says to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things. As these. She explains the good news, right? He understood the bad news that there's a holy God and he was a sinner, and because of his sin, he's worthy to be consumed in the fire. But she knows the good news. She says, No, 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 we're not consumed in the fire because a substitute has been offered for us. God has accepted that substitute. And because of that, we are now in relationship with God and we are on his mission to be the parents of his deliverer. And so yet again, we, she, she's the hero of the chapter as she explains to her husband the gospel of grace. This lets us know how both Samson the deliverer and the true and better deliverer Jesus that he's pointing forward to will deliver their people. They would deliver their people through their death. Spoiler alert. Samson's going to die. He's, he's going he's he's to die, and as, as a result of his death, he's going to re re release the people from the Philistines and their oppression. But again, this is pointing to the true and better deliverer, that of Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, he's going to die. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be consumed as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is, is for sinners like you and me. Now, two things to, to draw from here. There's a lot of things to draw, but, but, but these are the main, I think, two, two ideas. One is human sin can spiral out of control so much so that we don't even know we need saving. That human sin can spiral so much so out of control that we don't even know that we need saving. Probably the most famous verse from Judges that's quoted, usually out of context, but quoted many, many times, is Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What that's revealing is they don't even know that they're sinning. They're, they're not sinning and saying, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. They're sinning, and they're calling it right. They're calling right things wrong and wrong things right. This is the culture we're in right now. It's not always like this, but sometimes it is like this. And right now, this, it's like this, right? We don't even know we're sinners. 
And when we don't know we're sinners, we won't cry out for a Savior. Knowing that you're a sinner, that's, that's a mercy from God. That, that's, that's not something to, to be down about, to be depressed about. You've got to know you're a sinner if you're going to cry out to God for salvation. The people in Judges don't know they're sinners. Many of the people in our current context don't know they're sinners. Some of you in this room, you don't know that you're sinners. You'd like for Jesus to comfort you, encourage you, but, but, but you're not, you hadn't come to that place where you realize God is holy, you're not. And because of that, you have no hope outside of the salvation of Jesus. And so human, human sin can spiral to the place where we don't even know that we're sinners. But number two, God's grace is so great that he saved sinners even before they asked. That's what's happening here. He's providing a great salvation before they even, they're not asking for the salvation. This is a thread throughout Old Testament and throughout the New. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verse 9. He says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul's describing the grace of the gospel. He's saying while we were still God's enemies, we weren't crying out for help. We weren't, we weren't asking God to forgive our sins. He was already providing salvation. That even though in our sin we were so blinded, so hardened, that we had no interest in crying out to him, he saved us through the cross. It's through that salvation, it's through that great grace that he brings life out of dead places. One of the, the, the illustrations that's used in the New Testament for salvation, for conversion, is to be born Right, to be born again, that out, of, out of the dead spirituality that, that we had before Jesus, he superintends supernaturally in our souls such that by grace he calls forth life. And, and it, it's such a new life that it's like being reborn. It's mentioned multiple times in the book of John, but here's one, John 1 he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, right? So that rejection, that darkness. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That Syrian refugee with the scars not just physical scars, but lots of emotional scars and hopelessness, who, who fled his country and then found himself face-to-face -face with a Christian missionary sharing the gospel with him. And it took a few times, took a few people sharing life and sharing truth, and eventually this young man became a Christian. And that probably would not have happened had he not been in such a dark Place, a dark place so much so that he even fled his own country. And God somehow used all that crazy geopolitical mess and crisis to bring 
the hope of the gospel to this young man. And what he said to this missionary, he said, I want to tell as many people as I can about Jesus. And then he said, I mean, what could they do to me? But the hope that had been shared with him was so great. The grace that had been given to him was so great to be willing to give his own life for the gospel. Now, as as Christians, some of, some of you, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know about that place of realizing you're a sinner and, and you've reached out for grace. And you know what I'm talking about. You, you had that experience. But for some of you, it's this morning. It's clicking for you this morning. You're realizing, you're right, Robert, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, th- I thought I just needed some therapeutic comfort from Jesus, but I, I, I'm, I'm worse off than that. That I've been in a place so sinful, I didn't know I was a sinner. And God, in His mercy, He's reaching out to you. He's initiating with you. He's, he's offering salvation to you. Even before you knew, you needed it. And that by faith, you receive that this morning. Be forgiven. Be brought into relationship with Him by grace through faith. But those of us that we know that grace and we've received that grace, sometimes we we forget how desperate we were and how much we need that grace to maintain and sustain in our relationship with Jesus. And so I want you both, you you that are followers of Jesus, to remember how desperate we were. So desperate, we didn't even know we needed a Savior, and Jesus provided salvation. But also how desperate you are now. I think sometimes we think, well, once I become a Christian, then I kind of pull myself up by my own bootstraps, right? But that's not how it works. Those who grow, grow in grace. They figure out how to, to open up the spigot of grace by faith more and more and more, and you become m- more aware of your need. And as that grace pours in, you're able to grow as a Christian. And so you, you may be coming in here as a Christian feeling that you've been under the Philistines this week. And because of some of those old ways of thinking or that old default of the flesh, you've been been going back to some of your old ways of dealing with that oppression instead of crying out to God. But by grace this morning, cry out to God. Cry out to God. He will deliver you. We're reminded of this deliverance every time we come to this table. When, When Jesus is spending that last night with his disciples, And they're thinking that Jesus is about to do something big, right? (laughs) They they know things are are, are crescendoing to a point where something's got to give. And they're thinking that he is going to begin a geopolitical nation that's going to take over, right? And he totally throws them a curveball, right? He's, he's, He's sitting there eating Passover with them. He takes bread, breaks it blesses it, gives it to them, saying, says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. He lets them know that that next day he's going to be sacrificed once for all for sinners like you and me. Honestly, they don't even know they need it yet. I mean, they're still working that out, and he knows that. But he's going to do it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. He's going to save them before they even realize they need a Savior. 
In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blesses it, he gives it to them, saying, take this cup, drink it, all of you, as a, as a remembrance of the new covenant. The new covenant of his blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know that he's going to pay the ultimate price so that their sin can be dealt with and they can be brought into relationship with God by grace. And he's going to do that honestly before they even realize they need it. He's already done this for you before you even realized you needed it. That's grace. That's grace. So receive that this morning. If you've never done that, receive that grace of forgiveness and salvation and, and start a new life in Jesus this morning. And those of you that are Christ followers, as you receive this, I, I usually encourage you to come out with your, with your hand out. It's also helpful because not 200 hands is, you know, with their bacteria is going into the bread, okay? Let one hand give you the bread. So hold your hand out. But it's more than that, right? You, you are a role playing when you became a Christian. And all you could do was receive the gracious gift of the gospel that was given to you and even offered before you even knew you needed it. Let's pray. God, thank you for grace. It is, it's such a deep well. I've been walking with you for a few decades, and I, I, I still, I'm, I'm just, just getting my toe in it. And so, Lord, I, I pray that by your spirit, through your word, and through this time of taking the bread and the cup, Lord, would you, would you help us understand more deeply this grace that you've offered? Thank you for this beautiful picture in, a, in, in one of the darkest moments in the, the history of Israel where you just offer grace. Thank you that you've offered that grace to us. Thank you for those that are receiving that grace for the first time this morning. And God, as we take this bread and take this cup, we remember our need for you and the grace you've given. And we, we praise you for it. We, we thank you for it. God. We worship you for it. We offer our lives in unconditional surrender to you in response to the gift of your grace. So please bless the bread and the cup in our time together, both with you and in community with other folks that are in your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.